tens of millions of families with Alzheimer's disease and dementia all over the world, including our family. We are Alls in the Fam. I'm Alan Fair. And I'm Polly Fair Noise. We're siblings, we are parents, but we're also caregivers. This is our podcast. This is our support group. Welcome to our family. Alzheimer's sucks, but this family lives, laughs, and learns as we fight for a cure. Welcome. All right, all's in the fam with my fam. How are hey, my Alan. favorite sisters doing? Hey, Alan. So, Hi, Alan. All right, everyone got a chance to say hello. Very good. Well, um, this is going to be an interesting episode because we're going to talk about the difficulties that we're having with mom being in her her memory care facility during what's now just what seems like an interminable amount of months in the backdrop of COVID-19. And I think we're just going to talk and commiserate about some of the things that we're going through and that are happening. You want to start out, Polly? Yeah. So let's, uh, let's get us where we've been and where we are today. So at first they shut down completely. We couldn't visit and the facility wasn't really ready to deal with that. So there was no schedule for even for phone calls or FaceTime calls. We didn't know what was going on. They kind of worked that out, but um, mom eventually contracted the uh, coronavirus and um, we realized we're very lucky, but she was hardly sick at all. She didn't have a fever. She mostly, um, she lost her sense of taste, but, um, other than that, came through it with flying colors. And it went through her facility. At one point, they they were testing like 40 people a week, and half of them would come back positive with um, coronavirus. And that was um, mostly staff. But they did um, on mom's floor. She lived on a, she's on a small floor. There are seven people on her floor, and um, I think four people died or at least can no longer be staying in an assisted living facility needed to go to full nursing care. Um, so things have really changed and um, they were understandably at the, her senior facility, very um, afraid. So they decided that families couldn't visit the state mandated some of that. So we've, um, We've had a really difficult time. Um, eventually, I think around about July, late July, they opened and said, okay, there can be visits outdoors on our patio only after we have two weeks of every single person here, all staff, all residents testing negative for coronavirus. So they had that. We went and saw mom on what, a Wednesday and Alan was coming into town on Friday and by the time Alan got into town, they had found another case of coronavirus and shut back down and he couldn't see mom in person. Just to unpack a couple things that you just said, I, I feel that four out of seven people dying on the floor is that stat has shown up in my dreams. Like how crazy is that, that that many people died on her floor? Um, just so unbelievable to me. And then uh, it also makes me realize that, yeah, while unfortunate that I wasn't able to see mom at that time, I literally 
can't remember the last time that I saw her as we're sitting here recording this in person. Um, oh, okay. It was March, March. At, at Bonnie's house. Remember her, you know, the kids jumping in that trampoline in the backyard. Yeah. Yeah. And, and we knew about COVID then and we took a calculated risk. That's right. That was before the full-on lockdown and the world turned upside down. But yes. the the wave was, we knew it was absolutely coming. And even then we didn't really like hug or kept our distance. And Bonnie's in-laws were there who were who were elderly and you know knew to stay away. That was actually our last full family social gathering with mom. And that was March and here it is September. Right. It's been a long time. Um, so uh, things have changed for mom. We don't know how much she remembers. That's she still when I've seen her very recently, she talks about wanting to go home. Um, she doesn't talk about wanting to go to my home or go out, which is what we normally did with her there at when she was and in her memory care facility, we spent a lot of time taking her out. We got her outside. Mom likes to be outside, out in the world. And we had a pretty good routine going. Um, Bonnie, you took her out. Yeah, I, yeah, that's kind of, uh, I wanted to build on what you just said, because I think throughout this whole disease progression, one of the things that's grounded her and us in our relationship is the the um, repetitiveness and her understanding of certain situations that we're in together. And, you know, one of the things that we always did was to go and get a manicure and pedicure. And the routine of it was something that she understood. So it was a really nice day. She, when we were in the chair together, she understood that she was getting her nails done, getting her toes done. There was a constant progression to it. We could chat. We'd look at pictures together on our telephone. And so we could spend a lot of time together and she was not lost or worried or upset. It was just a very nice visit. And so to lose that with her has been very difficult because to replace it with a FaceTime call where she's not quite sure how to get her face into the picture or even understand that we're trying to look at her too and to figure out who she's talking to and follow the course of a conversation that doesn't have any pictures or anything with it has been really, really tough. So she tends to tell me what she's eating or a joke maybe that she saw one day she read to me from a book but the quality of our conversations and our interactions has gone way down and the frequency has gone way down too. So, you know, I think that day, like we were talking about in March was the last time I had seen her until Polly and I were able to go over that one half hour visit in March. And now we've had one more. So, um, and they were lovely visits and I, I don't know what the answer is with this whole disease, but touch and interaction and being with family are known to be so helpful in the, in people with Alzheimer's, anybody and all of us. And so to have it be so, so limited at this point is just devastating. We know to her, although we can't talk to her about it or, or, or see what's going on or anything, but it's devastating to me too. 
Um, an important thing, Bonnie, is the when you took her out to get her nails done, it was also um, care for her in that she needs someone to look at her feet, clip her toenails, um, and take care of that once a month or so at least. And we don't know if that's still happening at um, at her facility. They're very busy. They're not, the staff is trained not to do nails. Um, and it's yeah. the same thing with hair, isn't it, Tracy? Yes. So they do have a salon at her facility, but it's on a different floor. And one of the things that she does remember, even though she has Alzheimer's, is that one of her daughters will come and take her to the salon that she likes to get her hair done. So she refuses to have her hair done in her facility. So it sort of became my weekly routine to go and see her, pick her up, take her to get her hair done. And then there's a cute little area right around where we go that has little shops and restaurants. So we could always get a little snack or just walk around and window shop. And then we'd go back to her facility and it was the perfect amount of time, the perfect outing for her. And we noticed even on FaceTime calls that she definitely was not having that done very often. We could tell her hair was dirty and also becoming very gray, which she does not like because she just wants to keep her hair dark and she feels it makes her look very young. And so we thought for sure she would start complaining about that, but it's kind of funny. She hasn't. I actually think the gray coming in looks really good. And as time has gone on, I do feel like they are washing her hair more often. Um, I could be wrong about that. It's hard to tell because the FaceTime calls are inconsistent, but certainly the one time I've been able to see her, her hair was nice and clean. Um, I've only seen her once though, because the second time I had it all scheduled, but the weather changed and it was raining and I got a call a few hours before that they had, they had to cancel my visit with her. So that's a big worry, what's going to happen here soon in the D.C. area when the weather starts to get cold or, or rainy, et cetera. Yeah, and, I, and going back to what Polly was saying about um, feet, you know, feet are a huge issue for the elderly, both for, um, for foot care in general, clipping of toenails, that kind of thing, and, and having them looked at for circulation and stuff like that. And um, the staff, I know it probably a lot of uh, what's allowed to be done by a non-medical person varies from state to state. But I, in her facility, I don't think that the lay people are allowed to do her toes. They're allowed to do her fingers and they do. Um, and I know they do that because it bothers her so much when they're chipped that she'll talk about it relentlessly. And they used to call me to come and take her to get her nails done if she chipped one. And I've noticed that um, they're they're definitely doing the best they can with that, but the feet are an issue. And just beyond even that kind of care, like we're talking about, um, just the care of having somebody touching her and spending time with her one-on-one -on -one in a situation that she's comfortable with, with people that she knows love her and remember for now and and wants to be with. I mean, that's there's there's just it kills me that we're not there for her that way. Right. We haven't even seen this room that she's been moved into. I mean, maybe she's she hasn't complained about the gray hair because she doesn't have access to a mirror to see herself in this room that she's in. I mean, it's just so 
crazy that we don't know that. It's crazy. I think, um, I think the important thing about the gray hair to remember is she doesn't remember she has gray hair until she sees herself in a mirror. So when she's walking around, she doesn't know. You know, our whole thing with that is I always wanted her to be able to look at herself in the mirror and recognize herself. And we don't know if that's happening. Yeah, um, that's what I think too. It's more about how she's going to remember herself. She's never had gray hair her entire life that she can remember. And um, and I know that, you know, she remembers herself and us all at a younger age than we are, as, as evidenced by the fact that she comments on my wrinkles every time she talks to me. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the things that's happened during this shutdown is mom's gained a lot of weight, which isn't good for her. I blame it mostly on the fact that she can't, she can't walk. Mom's always loved to walk and she's, she's good at it. We had a difficult time wondering, I wondered a lot, does she have shoes that she can walk in? I mean, it was winter when this started and now we went through the hottest part of summer and mom tends to wear through some shoes um, and she likes to wear sandals in the summer, but it's not the right thing. So when we were making regular visits, you know, one of us at least, you know, be three times a week, basically, um, we would make sure mom put on the correct shoes to walk in and we could get her out for a walk. Now she's sitting longer. It's not good for her health. She doesn't have the right shoes on. She could trip and fall. On top of that, because her facility lost so many residents to all the people that died, by the way, were not necessarily from COVID. Some of them had underlying conditions that may have been exacerbated by COVID or whatever. But anyway, but mom, what she suffered the most from is isolation, lack of the ability to go out, to move enough to exercise. And because so many people passed away on her floor, they moved her. They said, we're shutting this floor down and moved her to a different floor. And so here's a person who had gotten used to the location of her room was the last one at the, on the right at the end of the hallway. She knew that. They moved her to a completely different floor. The room is smaller, so they didn't put her queen-size bed in. They put her in a twin-size bed. This is all without us being there. We couldn't see the room. And not the last room on the right. On no, not the floor, last room on the know? right. <laughs> it's the other end of the hallway on the left. I mean, and she, you know, I did get to see her outside last week and she was teary saying i just you know i may not i'm sorry i might fall asleep i just can't sleep the room it's just so small and she just teared up and cried and i i you know well let's just say it's incredibly difficult for anyone to see someone they love sad and upset and crying but i you know something broke in me i can't i don't think i'll ever recover from that and i can't go in did they did they put her clothes back in her dresser the way it used to be is there room for her to walk around does she have a rug is it clean i mean I, we really checked on her a lot in her space and so that's been difficult and the fact that she seems very isolated even in an assisted living facility when what we were trying to avoid and moving her to a group facility was isolation is just devastating 
Yeah, it's this. On the one hand, it's uh, isolating that's supposed to be with the idea of protecting her and protecting the the staff. And, and so in theory, maybe that's prolonging her life, but it's this sad, really lonely life. And so, you know, maybe she's getting this longer life alone, but probably sadder, uh, you know, yeah. versus a, a shorter, happier life where she gets more contact, more love, more, people present with her that love her. I think that there's a real balance that's a, that's a struggle with the whole coronavirus, and it's especially in our elderly, that isolation versus, versus vulnerability. You know, what's, what's the most vulnerable thing? And I, I think for our mom, it's been 100% proven that the isolation is more devastating to her than the disease. She had the disease and recovered very quickly. They wouldn't have even known she had it but the isolation is continuing to affect her in a negative way and a very devastating way. Um, and I was talking to Polly a little bit about, you know, my comparison to, you know, if you cut your arm and you're bleeding, you immediately rush to fix that arm. But, you know, when you have a mental health issue, which is what this depression and isolation is causing, it's it's easy to pretend you don't see it or don't understand that it's happening and not to address the emergency in as active and proactive a way as you're doing for the other emergency. And, you know, I think that's a really, really devastating, sad part of what's happening with our seniors and everybody right now. Yeah, I'll just say I've been alternately, you know, depressed and sad about not being able to do anything about mom, but also sort of angry that we haven't this many months into it figured out how to treat, you know, seniors and people in assisted living facilities, memory care facilities differently from the way we're treating prisoners. I mean, the prison population is being isolated. If one gets sick, they move them, I guess, to solitary confinement. That was the same plan for our mom when she tested positive. Bonnie, Tracy, Alan, and I, none of us are allowed in, but yet if when people died, movers came in and moved their stuff out and um, the um, there's private duty aides that are, are not, I mean, I'm sure they have some training, but they have no medical, special medical care that come in and leave every day. There's, you know, delivery people delivering things. There's a nurse that visits to take everyone's, to, they continue testing them for coronavirus. Mom has been tested weekly for coronavirus since April. So that's four and a half months now of tests. That can't be fun. And I, I you know, I won't deny that they need to continue testing, but I do think they have to figure out how to balance protecting her and isolating her, as you're saying, Bonnie. Yeah, and as we enter the fall and the, the colder months, we have on our mind all these decisions that come with things like flu season, for example, and getting her a flu shot. Yeah, so there's a, there's a push, um, I'm sure in all uh, assisted living and uh, senior care facilities to make sure everyone gets the flu shot. And this has been done every year that mom has been there. They want them to get the flu shot because elderly people are especially vulnerable to the flu. This year, 
um, they're really pushing it because they don't they don't know that they'll be able to tell the difference between flu and coronavirus, and it's really important to them that that happens. So um, in previous years, our mom has not gotten the flu shot because she hates getting the flu shot and refused to get it in all the years before she had Alzheimer's and in her earliest years with mild Alzheimer's. And um, her facility comes to me as her, I guess, medical power of attorney to sign off saying, give her the flu shot. And I'm, you know, I'm really torn. I feel like if I give them permission, they will go to mom and say, well, Polly said you have to get this shot and mom will want to do it. But I know that it goes against her wishes that she's already had coronavirus. So, and she doesn't want the flu shot. I, um, I'm not really even scared of the flu because I'm not interested in prolonging her life so that she can be sad and lonely for longer. Does that make sense? I mean, who wants a longer, lonely, sad life instead of a shorter, happier life? I don't know. I mean, at this point, I know that the shot is temporary suffering and it protects other people, but I really like for my mom to be able to make that decision. I think, Bonnie, you feel differently from me about the flu shot. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, Polly, we've had this discussion and agreed to have it on the air um, that I feel like it's a small thing to do to protect the community and to um, protect her in addition to the community. And um, that we're laying a lot of angst on what should be to me a routine thing that we do every year anyway, whether we like it or not. And I understand you're not wrong. I mean, mom didn't feel like she ever wanted to have the flu shot. Of course, I get the flu shot every year. I'm in a different situation. We all in my family get the flu shot every year because Mike is is vulnerable. And so, you know, my feeling is that we all do things that we might not do if it was just us that was affected by it. But as a part of a community, we do them anyway. And that this isn't, there's not a huge negative impact to her. Yes, there's a temporary discomfort that she won't remember five seconds later. But even in just the spirit of getting along, but also in being part of this vulnerable community and helping with the public uh, health program that they're putting in place there, I just feel like it's not that big of a sacrifice for mom. And that's a good point. I don't, you know, I don't have an argument for that. They're just asking me to sign a form. And my thought is what I'll say is if my mom agrees, sure, you have my permission to give her the flu shot. And it depends on the day whether mom will agree or not. Well, another consideration, and it's such a complicated decision, and I'm not siding with either one of you. I don't know. But you can get the flu when you get the flu shot. It will just be a milder version. But if you do get the flu without the flu shot, you aren't necessarily going to die from it at her age. I mean, we saw how well she did with coronavirus. However, she could be very, very sick and end up with a condition that makes her suffer even more than she already is. She's not suffering as much as someone could. I mean, she's in a horrible situation, no doubt. But if she ended up getting pneumonia, 
and have to be hospitalized and then go into rehab and then have to go back into her living facility, that would be really difficult for her. So, you know, I think about that too. Yeah. I mean, and there's, I, I worry about that too, Tracy. It's not like I've made a decision. I'm not signing it. I just, I just think it just illustrates how every single decision that seems like it's small is so hard with someone with Alzheimer's. Um, and you're making decisions on their behalf and, and you're, and you're right, Polly. I, you know, I think mom on her own has never wanted to get a flu shot, but if she, but the question becomes, I don't know. I mean, she can't understand all the implications around where she is now and what's going on in the time we're living in. And what would she do in that situation if she had her full faculties, but she doesn't? Yeah. No, I know. Well, there's, there's the logical argument. And then there's this one that's more existential is here. We see a woman that is suffering, can't help herself, knows for certain that there is something wrong with her and you do kind of question anything that if the status quo is to continue and this isolation continues, anything that's to prolong her isolated, lonely life as uh, her situation worsens and her Alzheimer's worsens, it's kind of like, oh, why would, why would you want to, that, that doesn't seem merciful to, do whatever you can to to keep her to, to prolong her from from living and endure more suffering it's i mean even i mentioned the four out of seven people part of me and for those that don't have a loved one with alzheimer's might find this weird but part of me was is kind of like oh, why couldn't she have been one of those one of those four and and her suffering would end, you know, I, I think all of us have had thoughts and we, we've talked a little, I don't want to, you know, I, I suppose there's some controversy in this, in this statement, but the idea that the best thing for her at this point is a merciful passing. And I don't feel like that all the time and wish for my mom's passing, but I do think about that often. I think we, we wish for an end to her suffering, but it's really, that's all you want. I don't, and I would love for the end to be, yay, there's a cure and she's all better. And so far we haven't seen one person survive um, Alzheimer's, but um, you know, we'd never, we didn't send, we didn't put her in a senior memory care facility to extend her life we put her in there to add some quality to her life, a little, you know, to make things better for her. That's all. So we just want to end her suffering. When she says she wants to go home, where, what does she imagine home to be these days? Do you think? I think home is always meant to her, the house we grew up in. That's what she's talking about. When I spoke to her today on FaceTime, she said, oh, I'm not home. I'm still at the place. So she still feels 
as if she needs to let us know that it's kind of a temporary thing, I think is what she's trying to say, because she'll either let us know that she's there. And sometimes when I visit or talk to her on the phone, she'll say things like, well, I think I'll stay here tonight, but tomorrow I'd really like to go home. Yeah, that's, that's still continued. And it kind of abated for a little while and then has been back maybe because of the room change or something like that, where she's out of sorts, but she's definitely been saying to me too, that she wants to go home and home is always the house we grew up in. Yeah. Yeah. So Polly and I, it reminds Polly and I of when we were on a UK radio show called the D word. Right. So when we were on that show, they talked about um, in the UK, if someone, uh, an elderly person, a person with dementia gets the coronavirus and has to go into the hospital, they're allowed to have a person come with them to the hospital to help them. In the United States, it's the opposite. You cannot go with your person who you're, you know, they can't bring a caregiver with them to the hospital, which means they don't know where they are. Um, they don't understand what's happened to them. They may try and pull out their IV and then they would be, you know, strapped then to their um, bed. So maybe their hands strapped down so they don't do that. And I just think again, there's got to be a better way than the way the United States or I forget the whole United States, just the way our mom is being treated um, doesn't leave enough room for um, adapting things to a person with her specific disease and abilities. So she can walk. She's not that frail compared to some people on her floor um, or in her facility. But she should be able to have someone go to the hospital with her if someone is willing to go. It's like sending a child to the hospital by him or herself. And Alan had his situation with his son having appendicitis and one parent was allowed to go and it should absolutely be the same for someone with dementia. Any type of mental incapacity, you know? Well, I sure hope that someday soon we can be with our mom and maybe not in the home that she imagines, but one of one of our homes and all of us can be together. So, yeah, I think that's what rubs me the most is that they don't want to let mom leave there. The, you know, it's a veiled threat that you may not be able to bring her back in. Um, And that doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah. So much of this doesn't. Yeah. All right. Well, fam. Thanks for listening to All's in the Fam. In the fight against Alzheimer's and dementia, we are all family. Find us at All's in the Fam on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and on our website, allsinthefampodcast.com. We appreciate you clicking that subscribe button on Apple, Google, Spotify, or whatever your favorite podcast catcher may be. Alzheimer's sucks, but we are in it together. We are alls in the family. Talk soon.